Hey guys, and welcome to the next episode of the Shane Walsh Fitness Podcast. So today's episode is with the amazing Lucy Wolf, which is at Lucy Wolf Sleep on Instagram. Lucy is a sleep consultant, a co-creational parent and relationship mentor. She is the author of the amazing books, The Baby Sleep Solution and All About the Baby Sleep Solution. She is a resident sleep expert and has been on Virgin Media. She's been on Ireland AM, a regular guest on the Today Show with Diane Mora and she's been, she's a mum of four so she knows exactly what she's talking about from first hand experience and we kind of talk about how she got into the field of sleep we talk about how it's celebrating the individuality of your child and how to work around that kind of how to work around kind of sleep and how to and the, the crying around sleep as well we talk about an amazing analogy that she talks about ta- a tank and that's it's very very useful so please bear with me and uh, we talk about kind of the, is the 7 p.m to 7 a.m and two hour nap thing realistic that a lot of people are are, are kind of put towards or lean towards uh, we talk about crying it out we talk about the gentle sleep shaping for under six months we also talk about growing your sleep we talk about kind of dealing with judgment as a parent from other parents in how we do things um, and i think it's hugely important that we also bring in kind of the, the categories of early risers and some kids uh, there's different chronotypes some kids are are great in the morning some kids are great in the evening and that it's it's working around the individual individuality of the child so i hope you enjoy the episode with the amazing lucy wolf lucy how are we very well how about you very good so Lucy, I gave you a brief intro before coming on, and I think we we're talking off air about how unique the field that you're in is. How does someone get into that field, and what made you get into that field? Okay, so I think for me, I ended up in this. I, I always say I got a call from the land of sleep deprivation. Um, so obviously, I had a different career. And I had started to have my family. And with my oldest son, I did struggle with his sleep. And when I went to seek support, there wasn't any. Um, there were books, um, but there was no actual in-person uh, support. And also the narrative at the time was almost like, if you want to have better sleep, then you just need to let your child cry it out. And of course, as any new parent, first of all, you don't anticipate to struggle with sleep. It just doesn't really even enter your mind, I don't think. And when you're struggling with sleep, then it's really challenging. And we didn't want to do that with our children. And so I then started to look for information on, you know, how I could help our children sleep better. And it was, we only had one at the time. And so I did, and I became very interested in the area of sleep because that time the oldest guy his name is Jesse he'd he'd been actually quite a good little sleeper in the very beginning and then his sleep started to degrade and I suppose I found that very interesting as a concept and then as I went on to have another child there's two years between the first two um, then of course my friends were also starting to have children at that stage and it just seemed to me that this was a real common issue and that there just wasn't anything there and I remember even talking to the public health nurses and they were surprised that I'd read certain books because they didn't even know. And so by the time I was having my third child, and it's two and a half years between the, first, the second and the third, I had, um, I guess I felt that I had more to give than the job I had. And I kept coming back to the sleep piece. And so then I decided that I would retrain and um, become the support that I felt I needed at the time. Because it just 
there just wasn't anything there. And I just felt that I could be that person. So basically, like a lot of businesses, I set out to provide something that I felt was missing for me as a person and a parent. And I also felt that there had to be a better way um, in terms of pride out. And I wanted to also acknowledge that and this comes with lots of experience and, and edu- you know, training that there, there's lots of variability but that wasn't being expressed in the books that maybe I, that were available to me at the time. And so that's really how I ended up. And so I've been in practice for 10 years now. And I hope that in that time frame, well, I know that first of all, I've helped thousands and thousands of parents directly and indirectly then obviously through my books. But also I feel that I'm in a lovely position to try and change that narrative that you can have better sleep. It doesn't need to be emotionally inappropriate. You don't need to let your children cry it out. And again, you can still have, you know, um, great sleep for your children, but you can also embrace the individuality that comes with your children. So that's how I ended, that's how I, I ended up doing this. And I suppose when I began, I had a very clear vision of what I wanted. Um, and I feel that thankfully I've been able to put most, if not all of that into motion i really like the idea of kind of like the individuality of your child and embracing that because i think that that is like from reading books on in general fitness and nutrition anyway that you can give out of mind like a sweeping advice but i think having the practical tips for individual children or individual parents because everyone is is completely different and i yes. think it's important for us and like for people to kind of go back to the very basics of kind of like with children sleep can you kind of give like the very basics is there kind of like a one uh a one size fits all when it comes to the hours or any tips that you have or the main maybe three or four pillars that you have that kind of yeah, work with yeah. your, your parents I, on yeah and i suppose like i put a huge emphasis on the individuality of each child because like just like you say we are all individual we're unrepeatable we're totally unique and so for me it just stands to reason that one size won't fit all. Now, I definitely work within a framework, but then I really, because I suppose I see when I hear of things like, um, oh, seven to seven, or I can't get my child to sleep for more than two hours. And I'm thinking, that's really rare to get in the first place. But we've been kind of sold this as a, you know, like almost like a parenting ideal. And then when you don't achieve that, you feel like you failed. So I really feel that's really important. And then the other thing I think is very important, and this is where we start, let's say, become more understanding around our children's sleep, is that absolutely everything affects your children's sleep. Like everything they think and they feel, everything they see, everything that they do, everything that they eat and drink and wear affects their sleep. That's a lot of influencing factors, isn't it? And that's a lot of things. It's huge. And then I, so I just still sleep along those lines by taking that into account. There are, first of all, lots of force factors that affect children's sleep. And then there would be, the, let's say, the way sleep itself is designed. So sleep has its own mechanisms, if that makes sense to you. Yeah. And what we see is, and studies routinely demonstrate this, and also practice completely um, shows me that um, there are two major contributory factors to a lot of the sleep challenges that we experience as parents. So again, I try to explain these to families. So again, first of all, we can begin to understand in a meaningful way, because again, that's another thing that I felt that I was being told to put them into the cotton, walk away, and let them cry it out. But I wasn't being told why is, you know, why do we do it that way? Now, again, I wouldn't recommend that, but I wanted to know 
the reasons. And when I had the reasons, I was then able to be able to begin creating a plan. So I described the two major contributing factors as, first of all, sleepability. So again, you may well have heard and your listeners will have heard words like self-soothe, um, self-regulate and um, self-settle. OK, but really, what do those words mean? And also, what do they look like? And they look very different for each individual child. So I actually kind of coined this as being sleepability. So in order for young children at some point when they're developmentally and age appropriately able to do so, they they benefit from having a high sleepability, which really just describes how they get to sleep. So the more able they are at pushing themselves to sleep, as in doing some or all of the work themselves, then the more chance we have of them being able to cycle through their natural sleep phases. So if you think of it a little bit like sleepability exists on a scale that maybe goes from zero to 10 and your baby could be on any notch on that scale, the higher up the scale they go, the more able they will be get through those biological sleep phases. So you'll probably hear people say, oh, it's a biological norm. It's a biological fact that children wake up or they nobody sleeps through. And that's absolutely correct. That's the biology of your our sleep. But what is also a biological fact is that you can cycle through your sleep phases. You can go up and down and over and through them and maintain your sleep profile. But if you have a low sleep ability, then you'll be more vulnerable to not being able to do that. Does that make any sense? Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Yeah. And I think that like there is also it's like sleep cycles and stuff like that for adults. And how important is the kind of like the kind of like is manufacturing the right word? Manufacturing of kind of like the sleep cycle from the child and the impact it has on a sleep cycle as an adult. How important is that? Yeah, so I suppose by the time children are around four months or so, ne- neurologically, the character of their sleep represents very much the same as an adult sleep profile. So they are now cycling through, you know, REM and non-REM sleep. And that's where we often see a lot of challenges begin to arise because the sleepability may be on the low side. And as a result, as they try to get through those sleep phases, and if you just think about that as like a peak and a trough, then we often start seeing them waking on those sleep cycle, the partial arousals, and not being able to get back without the parents' support, if that makes sense to you. And then that's often why we see where we start to see some challenges or some people will see them before that, but it becomes very obvious around that month, that time onwards. And basically like some parents might suggest that they put their children to sleep, they go to sleep for the first maybe two to four hours and then they start to wake and they need support from the parent. I mean, they don't even need to open their eyes because it's a partial arousal. Okay. And, um, and they often translate as the rest of the night unfolds, the waking becomes more frequent because the sleep cycle is more frequent. The transition between the sleep phases is more. So, you know, after an hour, two hours, 50 minutes, 20 minutes, they might start to report they need to do more to support their child back to sleep. And, and then they normally get to around 5 a.m. And, and then children want to do one of two things. They either want to get up and start the day or they're going to do this deep section of sleep for another hour or two. So this sleepability and that biology of their sleep is probably one of the biggest challenges. And um, because if the sleepability remains on the low end of the scale, then the, it, you may well report more vulnerability to that nighttime waking. So that's definitely one part of sleep challenges. And then that is then often complemented, if you like, by the other part of sleep challenges, which I describe as being well, I call, it's biological timekeeping, but I feel that always sounds a bit too vague. It, it's all to do with 
timekeeping and or retiredness. And again, I always try and use a visual. So if I use a scale from zero to 10 for sleepability, I always also use a tank for overtiredness. And children who struggle with their sleep, they generally have irregular or late wake times. Their daytime sleep is often attempted when they are already overtired. As a result of that, the daytime sleep is often varied or short in duration. And as a result of that, as a rolling cycle, so is the next nap and so is the next nap. So that by the time we get to bedtime, the child is already overtired. And this overtiredness is in a tank and that tank starts to fill and then that tank starts to spill. And the more overtired the child becomes, the less they will be able to maintain their sleep. So when children become overtired, the body has a chemical response and that chemical response is cortisol and adrenaline to the system and it just has two main jobs it can make it hard for the body to go to sleep which is why we hear about a lot about resistance of sleep and then it also can make it hard to, for the body to maintain sleep so this is when there where you hear about waking really frequently throughout the course of the night um staying awake for long wake periods, early rising, short naps are generally all indicative of an overtired cycle. So it's that tank filling and spilling. So in order for families to begin to help their children sleep a little bit better, sleep a little bit deeper, sleep a little bit more and less interrupted, we generally try to look at improving the sleepability, which we can chat about. And we also try to drain that tank, which we can also chat about. How do you improve the sleepability? We'll start with that. So I guess I encourage families anyway to think of their children's sleep in two paths. So under six months being one cohort and then over six months. And I work with families up to six years of age. So I know that's two disproportionate halves, but it is because in these first few months, sleep is immature. And developmentally and emotionally, children are not necessarily ready or able to take on a big learning exercise. So under six months, I would generally encourage that families do what I call dental sleep shaping in an effort to initiate some of those, some of the sleepability or all of it, and also to try to manage the overtired tank, if for want of a better description. And then over six months, and I work with families, like I said, up to six years, I do then what I describe as being gentle sleep learning. Now, when parents hear about, you know, working with families until they're six and the first book covers children up until their age six and um, they kind of you know they can be surprised but I normally feel that it represents two things one it doesn't your sleep challenges that you experience don't always just go away so that often parents maybe feel that if they wait you know if they wait until you know they, the baby starts walking or talking or you know, goes to college, that maybe they start to sleep better, but that doesn't always happen. And then the other thing is that I feel that is a good sign to show you that it's never too late to maybe begin to work on your children's sleep. And I suppose early intervention is key, but also at the same time, I feel it's when you're ready as a family to begin to make adjustments and changes. And I know obviously you're in the fitness world. I often feel that the process of improvement when we are working on sleep is like um, beginning to get fit or beginning to become a, you know, more mindful of your eating practices because it's a lifestyle change and improvement exercise and it takes time to establish it. Um, now it's probably, you know, there's lots of elements to it, lots of dimensions to it, like I say, but I guess I try to get parents to think about along those lines. So, um, I mean, parents of newborns, 
you know, I guess it's a big shock to the system for a lot of families, especially if you have a child that doesn't sleep the way they've portrayed it in the magazines, if you like. Yeah. And so I feel that then those parents can be using my dental sleep shaping. And then later on, as your child gets older, you can convert into the learning. In relation to, say, like, I know for for adults, there are kind of like environmental factors that you can do with, the, say, the bedroom or clothes or whatever like that and controlling the room temperature. Is there anything like that that could be done to help with yeah, the kids? absolutely. Like all of that, all of that needs to be taken into account. So, you know, let's say just in general, like regardless whatever age a child is, like I'll always be encouraging what I describe as being a sleep friendly environment. And, you know, that means that when it's bedtime and bedtime in the very early days is going to be really late, it's going to be your bedtime. And then as your child gets older, it becomes more like I call an adult orientated bedtime and then from around four months plus it becomes more like a child orientated bedtime and so maybe somewhere between 6 and 8 p.m whereas in the early months it's more like whenever you're going to bed or and that could be anything really for your child between 10 and 12 because they're not ready to sleep until then and then that just changes over time but wherever your child is going to sleep I'll obviously be looking for a safe sleep environment you know but I'll also be looking for you know dark enough warm enough um, and bedroom temperature for children between 16 and 20 degrees, rest warmly enough, um, I, I avoid big distractions, um, things hanging from the ceiling. So I do look at the space in a, in a critical way, but I also look at the, so we talk about warm enough, but I'm also looking for a warm enough um, emotional environment as well, so that we are providing that really um, important, responsive, attuned um, family culture so your children are growing up in this kind of bubble of feeling loved, safe and secure. So that it's, it's environment in two parts, if that makes sense as well. That's really interesting. And like in relation to kind of the concept of 7 p.m. to 7 a.m. and the two hour naps, is that realistic for a lot of kids or is that kind of like the, the target or is that kind of one oh, I of I feel these? it's like a unicorn, actually, Shane, if I'm oh, really? honest with you. Yeah, I really do. And I think this is where, let's say, I spend a load of my time uh, giving out about unrealistic expectations that are there in the narrative, unfortunately. Um, I feel that, first of all, um, I guess I think that children will do what they need to do with your support and encouragement at a pace that they are ready for, both emotionally and developmentally. And I guess from, you know, from six months plus, we definitely feel there's lots more scope and opportunity for children to sleep longer, better and more. When a child can actually sleep, you know, 10, 11, 12 hours is another thing altogether. Does that make sense? So I suppose I talk about a personal best which is probably sounds funny to you and I talking because you probably talk about that with your clients. <laughs> yeah. So I talk about us trying to help your child sleep their personal best, whatever that is, based on their age, their stage and the decisions that you have made. Now, I will always aim high. So I'm always hoping for as good as it can be. But at the same token, I, I pair it back once we've seen how they're able. So I don't like people spending loads of time, you know, trying to get a two hour nap if that child is not willing to sleep if they sleep for an hour and 20 that's amazing does that make sense to you so again I'm so realistic and then as a result of that I feel that parents don't feel like they're failing that their self-esteem stays high and they stay confident and they also are accepting of the, the variability that comes with their children I always aim high but I'll always then say okay that seems about right so I normally kind of say from months plus we're generally looking for maybe 10 and a half to 12 hours but that may not be without waking without needing feeding without needing support and connection from the parent but we may be hoping for you know a bit you know longer and deeper 
and then as time goes by that they can do their personal best and then where daytime sleep is concerned again from six months plus I'm generally hoping for one nap of around 40 minutes and maybe one nap of an hour plus and if you get anything more than that it's just totally a bonus Mm -hmm. and then like you know under six months sure if you're getting 30 minute sleeps you're probably still doing great does that make sense yeah that makes a lot of sense is there a kind of a cutoff for that so like would you say kind of before 1 p.m or would you say after 1 p.m for those naps or is that very dependent yeah like i do put a lot of emphasis on um the timing of sleep because obviously our circadian rhythm underpins our sleep practices you me and our children your young child has a circadian rhythm it's not mature it won't be until it's they're gone four, but it still has a massive impact on their sleep. So the time that they wake, the time that they nap determines how long they nap for. The gap between the nap determines how long the next nap will be. And the time that you approach bedtime will also have an impact on how well your child sleeps. So we see that when we honour, um, I call it like an, um, the dynamic between sleeps. If we honour age-relevant dynamics between sleeps, which really essentially means getting to your child before they're overtired, um, then our children have higher uh, possibilities of staying asleep for longer because then we're avoiding that overtiredness, that time. And then as a result of that, they can go into a deeper, more restful sleep. So I do put a huge amount of um, emphasis on reading language for sleep. So looking for brief eye rubs, brief yawns, maybe moments of quiet, zoning out as being representative of getting tired and avoiding where possible, you know, intense eye rubbing, big type yawning, agitation, whingy, fussy, moany, because that represents overtiredness. So that's maybe, you know, the, oh, this, this, the tank starting to fill and then we'll see more resistance and probably less ability to stay asleep. So we look at language of sleep. I also sometimes um, hijack body clock and work off a time frame because I have found in my practice over all of these years that if there are certain numbers work particularly well, which is why I introduced my bedtime number line in my second book because it helps parents have something to work on. And then I also talk about a nap gap dynamic and that's the relationship between the end of daytime sleep and its relationship to bedtime. So it seems that between the ages of about four to eight months, if we can have our children awake no longer than around two hours between the last nap and bedtime, they seem to go asleep easier and stay asleep longer. If we can make that between eight months and 18 months, not more than three to four hours between the last nap and bedtime. So like they say conceptually, that might mean sleeping until three or 3.30 in order to be asleep by around seven or 7.30. Um, that seems to, again, honour the science of sleep and allow the sleep to be more restful and more consolidated. And so we're lowering those risks of the sleep interruptions throughout the course of the night. You may still have night waking because that could be completely normal for your child. But what you're doing now is you are doing like what I would maybe call risk management. So you're lowering the vulnerabilities. And then between 18 months and maybe three years, um, which is when you maybe won't see a nap anymore from your young child. We we like to maybe see f- no more than four to five hours between the last nap and bedtime. And this is where I see a lot of problems emerge, actually. So you might have a child who sleeps really well initially, or you've worked very hard on helping your child sleep well. And then by, you know, 15, 18 months plus, sleep starts to degrade a bit. And just to put this in context, this week in my practice, I think I probably had four two and a half year olds um, as clients who all had a really good sleep history that had degraded. Um, and sometimes the challenge there is that 
the bedtime is appropriate, so it looks like it's the right time, but the nap is finished too early in the day. So, for example, the single nap might be 11 to 1, which is an amazing nap. It's a two-hour nap, amazing. Um, but then bedtime is 7, but they've been awake now for six hours, and this compromises your sleep. So, for me, it is all about the devil in the detail. So, it is all about that timing aspect. Without going insane, it is about learning to read the language of sleep and understanding it. It is about creating the right environment, both physically and emotionally. And then, of course, looking at eating and drinking and all those things that have a massive impact on your child's sleep as well. When you're implementing something new like that in with parents, how long do you kind of normally give in order for it to get enough time to see if it is working? Because I know that parents can kind of like parents are not going to be really sleeping either themselves. They get agitated. They can get frustrated with the process. How long do you kind of normally give for something to be implemented in? And this is again, like, you know, where I was so like cross with the information that was out there because like, and not now, but like, well, yes, still now, but like we were always kind of told three days and the problem will be solved. Right. And I kind of feel like what could be solved in three days? Like nothing. You couldn't even lose weight in three days. Right. So I, it takes me three to four weeks when I'm working with a family to um, improve the situation. And we'd be very close to being, you know, very close to what it's going to be within that time frame. But it takes that time for the brain to learn a new pattern of behavior. And also it takes that length of time for sleep to kind of establish, like take root, if that makes sense to you. So generally, I would anticipate improvements within seven to 10 days. But those improvements may still come with the problems that you had. Okay, so um, I might be depending how your child goes to sleep. And that might be improving, but it may not seem like it was a challenge in the first place. So if you feed your child all the way to sleep, for example, they may go to sleep really peacefully, but they may then struggle to maintain their sleep profile overnight as a result. So I might need to change that. So it doesn't look like it's an issue, but then I have to change it. And so it becomes an issue momentarily but then very quickly that will start to improve and as that starts to improve the possibility of the overnight starts to kind of click into place when i'm working with directly with a family and the child is under two normally within two weeks i'm really close to stitching the night together but i will still probably see early rising and i also will see shorter naps until we're really kind of three four weeks or so down the line and what i have experienced shane as well is that when parents are doing it for my book on their own, it obviously takes them longer. But the big point here is it takes time. And don't forget, there's other influencing factors. And feeding and sickness play a huge role in undermining our efforts. And just as you said, that when you're trying to, first of all, improve your children's sleep, first of all, you're coming from a weak position because you yourself are already sleep deprived. And by the nature of the change that you're making, it may get worse before it gets better. So that takes another toll on the family unit. And then, of course, then you might hit the roadblock of teething and that will disrupt your sleep, your child's sleep anyway, because they don't sleep well if they're not comfortable or if they're in pain. And again, it's about trying to have maybe a response plan in place when you meet those roadblocks so that as soon as your child feels better, that their good sleep profile can come back up to the surface. So... I call when we're helping children sleep better, growing your sleep. That's how I think of it. I think of it about us providing a fertile ground by putting all those foundation pieces pieces in place. And then I think of it about nurturing the sleep so that I can grow it to the strongest 
and more, most robust place that it can be for that particular child. And that definitely takes that length of time. And that's very important information there. I really, really do. You mentioned the words or the phrase early risers in that yeah. little snippet there. There's five categories you talk about. Can you kind of expand what they are? And, uh, and I kind hope of I answer? can remember what they are. <laughs> to test. <laughs> well, I suppose, again, this is... I, I wrote my second book. Now, my second book came out the day we locked down last year. So it's probably, it's suffered. It's, I kind of feel sorry for that particular book because it does sell, but it's got no chance. Does that make any sense to yeah. you? Um, and I guess my first book outsells the second book exponentially every week. Um, but it, I, th- I think that it'll come into its own because it, the more, anyway, this, this, that book was based on questions parents ask because in say the book was the first book was three years old and I was giving as much information as I possibly could. I was going around doing seminars and workshops with people. And yet I'd still have a massive queue of people asking me questions. And so what I realized is that our generation, this generation, we want information in sound bites in small pockets. Now you can't do anything really in small pockets, but I thought I could distill it in a cleaner way. And so as a result, I divided everyone's sleep up into sleep segments. So you could start to understand what the bedtime segment might be doing for your child's sleep and what you might need to change to improve it. And then I took it into overnight segment and I created uh, the, old, the early morning segment because I guess if I put a post on early rising on my feed, it is probably gets the most hits because it's one of the biggest challenges. And I then siphoned off five different categories or maybe I did or I didn't. But anyway, I feel that there are a couple of different cohorts where the early rising is concerned. One is um, your early riser who's just learning. So I call that the early learner. So they're in the middle of, you've made changes, let's say in a line with my approach and you're maybe two or three weeks in and you're experiencing early waking. That's early learning. And that's the last sleep cycle. So if you keep making the changes and keep being very predictable and you move your naps into position and listen, your listeners will know what I mean by this because they'll have been reading the book, hopefully. So they'll know what I'm talking about. That's an early learner. And then that means that that sleep cycle will improve over the course of the next two or three weeks. So, so that's one category. Then we have the, ooh, let me remember, I guess I might call the habitual early, early riser. So maybe you worked in your sleep ages ago. Um, and this, you still had early rising and it just never went away. So now they're a habitual early riser. And again, I try and look at what causes early rising. There's loads of different factors that cause early rising, but there are two to three major ones. First one is sleepability. So you might have a child who goes to sleep with a bottle too close to sleep time. They sleep really, really well until 5 a.m. But they can't get through the last sleep cycle because their sleepability is still on the lower range. Make sense? Yep. So they need the sleepability at bedtime to be improved in order to be able to get through the last sleep phase. And then that sleep phase needs to be treated. Um, I guess another cohort for the early way. Oh, sorry. And the other reasons within that then would be the nap gap is too big, like we talked about earlier. Um, you know, the environment isn't, uh, it's not dark enough. They're not warm enough. The, and I guess one of the most undermining influences is what the parent does when they're treating the early waking. And a lot of us, unfortunately, and this is just by purely by you know the nature of sleep problems they get to five o'clock in the morning and because that's nearly the morning time you might pop them into bed with you and or you might give them a feed but that feed may not no longer be needed age-wise or you know just it's very nature and but that ingrains the the more the early waking by what you do so i suppose you've got the early learner um you've got the habitual early risers so they're stuck in the last sleep phase 
you've got the early and um, the temporary early riser. So that's when they wake because they have eating or they're be beginning to get sick. So out of the blue, early waking normally indicates something's going on with your child, like teething or sickness or maybe a developmental leap. And you've got the early starter. So there is the children that are predisposed to early waking. So you probably know, don't you, about chronotypes yeah. you know, yeah. who are predisposed to being what they probably call the um, what they call the owl at night time and then they call the lark in the morning time. Well, there's probably different names for them now. And so there are some children, that's just what they can do. You know, it's just, just there. it doesn't matter what you do, whether you put them to bed at eight o'clock or nine o'clock, they'll still wake at that time and they're just, just, just predisposed to that. Now, I'll never lean on that until I've worked ferociously on the sleep. And then I go, okay, they can do 10 and a half hours, but they can only do 10 and a half hours if we do this, if that makes sense to you. The last cohort would be your bedtime is early. So maybe your bedtime is six o'clock and they wake at five o'clock because they had enough sleep. That's what, yeah, there's so much there. And I think the chronotype thing definitely has to come in even as an adult as well. I don't think a lot of people have realized there is a chronotype for different people and they kind of like can get frustrated and have a massive impact yeah. on. And it does. And I think that I, I generally, like I've got four children, as you know, and um, I, they, let's say my oldest guy, he'd have been an early waker, early riser, one of the predisposed people after much trying to work on it and everything. And he, now he's a teenager, well, he's a young adult. He still wakes really early. He's a chronotype. That was his chronotype that was in him, genetically predisposed. But I'm a bit like that too. Like I do great if I get up early. I'm better if I do my meetings, my writing in the morning time, whereas I'm fit for nothing in the evening time. And then I have an owl, my next child. And she's a bit like that as well. She had that later bedtime profile, even when she was younger. And now like she comes into her own to 16 when I'm looking to go to bed but then she will you know want to sleep it off in the morning time and again she does her best work in the evening time and it's about recognizing the chronotype in ourselves and in our children as well and then that's why I feel knowing your child's individuality is very it's I just feel it's just so important the individuality word is coming back in again yeah, yeah it's, it's 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 super super important you mentioned there kind of like sometimes when parents aren't necessarily sleeping and do you feel there's kind of a judgment from other parents in relation to looking at other parents that their kids aren't sleeping that their kids are being kind of like little terrors or anything like that is there little is there language that can be used in order to kind of tweak that from parents yeah like I feel unfortunately like the whole basis of my philosophy when parents come to work with me and when they view my work on my social platforms is that I wanted to feel without judgment. You know, as a parent myself, I always felt quite judged and it's taken a lot of work on myself in a personal capacity to, you know, to, to stay separate from that. Um, and like sleep itself is highly controversial, you know, um, there's lots of different schools of thought. Um, it's divisive, it's emotionally charged. And as a result of that, you have lots of different dynamics within that. Some people who are critical of people who are looking to get better sleep for their children. Some people who um, are critical if you don't find get better sleep for your child. And some people who, you know, there, there can be um, this, I suppose, a meanness, a judgment around it. And that's why I always say, look, it's what feels right for you. What's your family? What do you want for your family? And that you're making informed, appropriate um, decisions that are right for your particular family. So even yesterday, I had a client, I'm actively working with them. And, you know, she kind of came to me with a question. And I always say, look, what feels right for you? Because it has to be around 
what feels right for you as well within a framework of decisions and a philosophy that maybe you are kind of um, integrating yourself within. Um, I do think that it can be a difficult place for parents. And what I always say is that, you know, when parents come to me, you know, they are at crisis point. They're not just looking to get a bit extra sleep. They are generally dealing with a child who's been waking for 40 minutes, every 40 minutes throughout the course of the night, or they've been waking for three hours every night or waking at four o'clock to start the day or sleeping only for 30 minutes in a day. Like that's unbelievably hard. And I think it's about having that kindness to each other. If that suits one family, so that's fine. But if that isn't suiting the family and if the mental health, emotional health of the family unit is at risk, then I feel that we have to be open allowing people to make those informed decisions and to allow them to be what they want to be and what they want their family to look at and for us to meet each other where we're at yeah no, i think that's i think that's hugely important i think it is kind of like everyone will have different things that they do struggle with when they kind of are parents everyone's kind of learning it's a learning curve it's not like oh, here's, here's a manual yeah no, and, there, and like you'll change. I always, I feel this, I feel myself as a parent, you evolve. And again, what you, like how I parented in my early days, I parent completely different now. And I suppose that comes with older children, but it also comes with, you know, experience and seeing what, you know, how things unfold. You know, let's say like, I, like we've, met, we've got an 18 year old and like, I kind of laugh a little bit how he panicked when he was 15 and 16 doing certain things that you feel like are going to, you know, you be so worried about. Whereas we wouldn't have that concern now with our next child because you've kind of lived it and seen it unfold into the amazing people that are becoming. And so you can become a little bit more relaxed in your attitudes um, towards them. But that takes time. And it's the same with your sleep. And I suppose it pains to tell you that when I'm working with families or when parents are using my approach, we're not praying it out. We're having a really gentle, supportive, emotionally appropriate um, a way of helping your child sleep better. It's practice-based. Um, it's practice-informed. It's evidence-based. And it is also then meeting the needs of the individual family unit. And that's what I think is so important to keep acknowledged. You've mentioned the word kind of, or the phrase kind of crying it out, because this is one of those terms that can be judged uh, and some yeah. people are like pro it some people are, are anti it what like how do you like do you work with parents to kind of to let babies cry it out or is it the kind of the, the opposite of that yeah so i don't i first of all i will support a parent in the space that they're in in the decision that they make but i won't i will always encourage them to use my stay and support approach i will always look to accompany the child on their journey Okay, so that I don't want the child to cry. If they're crying, I want them to cry accompanied by the parent and supported by the parent. Um, and so I'll always, I'll always try and help them to get into that space, even if they want to do it in a different, in, in a different way. I'll always give the child the benefit of the doubt, if that makes any sense to you, so that we emotionally appropriately help them to transition and improve their sleep ability. Because cry it out is about popping your child into their cot and leaving them to get that sleepability they talked about, but without any support from the parent. And that can maybe a perfect solution for some families. However, it's not my my own philosophy and how we can maybe help it to happen. Um, but again, I'm very keen to say whatever decisions that you're making, um, I want them to feel right for you. But I, you know, when parents come to me, we'll be using my stay and support approach. 
Okay. No, I mean that, yeah, okay, that's that's perfect. I think it, as you said, it's it's actually working with what they have already and tweaking things if needs be. And I think that's usually important for as a coach in general. And I think that's that's credit yeah. to yourself on that. You've mentioned food and babies and sleep and stuff like that a few times. Are there any big yeah. myths around this that you kind of see on a daily basis that kind of you want to tear your hair out? Um, I guess I, I love. I, I probably mentioned this a few times, but I love understanding. Does that make sense to you? And yeah. I guess some of the understandings that we have are bit not based on anything. You know, they've come through the ages almost and they're, we've just absorbed them. And I guess the ones that nothing makes me tear my hair out, but I guess I'm always trying to change the narrative on is let's say our understanding around food and drinking and sleep. So let's say I don't really believe that stacking up the calories, starting solids early, changing from formula, from breast to formula are going to make your children sleep better. I don't really believe that. I don't ever really see that in my practice. I feel that if we go and look at the big ticket items that influence our sleep and if we address those, then without making those big unnecessary changes, we can probably see our children sleep better. Um, I do obviously believe that our children need to be getting enough to eat and drink. I do believe that they need to be getting that in a balanced way. So that I call it feeding and sleeping balance when I'm creating a day layout for a young child. Because they need to eat at regular intervals. They need to know that they're going to be eating at regular intervals. They need to be offered, you know, a rainbow diet of balanced food. And I guess I have a couple of things that I like. So I like when it's established that dinner is in the evening time, like the main meal. Um, I like that to be in the evening time around five so that the digestive tract is time to relax. And then if we're lucky, it might be the longest time your child is going to pass until the morning time, depending on their age and things like that. So I like that level of balance. And then I guess the big thing that I find is, um, is it's sort of to do with feeding, but it, it is and isn't, is when we feed our children to sleep. And again, this is something that comes into, um, again, that judgment part, because um, if you're feeding your child to sleep, let's say you're rocking, I'm uh, sorry, giving them a bottle of sleep or breastfeeding them to sleep. There's absolutely nothing wrong with it. Absolutely nothing at all. I would encourage it, especially in the early few months. But the way that sleep is designed, if we feed to sleep, then we go back to that low sleepability. So it might get them to sleep really easily, but it may then mean that they can't get through their natural sleep phases. So a lot of what I do is separating the last feed from sleep and look for a hundred million years children have been fed to sleep. Okay. So you feel like, oh, that's that, that, that's, that's the natural thing to do. But very often, um, when the feed is too close to sleep time, it stops the sleepability from kind of engaging in the overnight period. And that's where we start. So I just um, create a little bit of separation there. Um, so I might do the last feed about 45 minutes before bedtime. So I'm taking the, I'm uncoupling the feed from the sleep profile so that the sleep profile can improve. And of course, lots of parents then worry that if they don't drink immediately before bedtime, they're going to be hungry overnight. And I guess I don't really feel if you move it out by 45 minutes or if they don't necessarily drink as much there, that they're going to be hungry. Now, this is for a six months plus, not for a younger age range. But I think it's probably one of the biggest myths that I'm always trying to blow the lid on because, again, it's about the way the sleep is designed. So much there, There's so so much there. I think that, that I think that's the biggest thing. Um, in relation to the last question, I'm going to kind of ask you is about the the gentle sleep shaping for under yeah. six months. I know you're. This is one of the big things that you kind of work on with under six months. What is it in general in, in practice, and what 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 
where did the term- terminology come from? Um, so I suppose that's, I, I, would I change the terminology now? I probably, no, I don't think I would because I wrote the last book recently. So again, I didn't change it, but I do think it's about shaping your sleep. And the reason I use the word shaping is that it may not be exactly what you want it to be, but you're providing a, let's say this fertile ground for it to start grow when your child is that little bit older. Now, sometimes parents, if they start early on using my approach and my shaping guidelines, so the shaping guidelines are very in line with what we've talked about, you know, um, looking at the circadian rhythm, developing a feeding and sleeping balance to the day, having a level of synchronicity between your feeding practice and your sleeping practice and trying to avoid your child from becoming overtired by knowing the language of sleep. And then I use what I call my percentage of wakefulness approach, which is trying to have your baby just a little bit awake and aware input down at bedtime specifically so that you obviously will have induced your bedtime routine in the very early weeks and months, your baby is likely to be like 100% asleep on the last feed or the last cuddle at bedtime. And what I try and do there is just see, can I open them up a little bit and see, could I have them a little bit aware? So let's say 5% uh, aware and 95% asleep. And what I'm doing there in those really early critical few weeks and months is I'm trying to initiate the sleepability. And then that means if you can do that from early on, that by the time your child does get to the four month mark, and if you've kind of worked towards, you know, 90, 10% awake, 85, 15% aware, I put you down. But if you could get to like 80 or 70%, 70, 30, by the time their sleep phases lock into place in that adult orientated way that we talked about, they'll be able to get through some of their sleep profiles now without waking. And now they're not going to wake on every sleep phase and look like they need something from you. They're going to start doing some of that work themselves. And that's where then your sleepability is being improved. And as a result of that, they start to sleep a little bit longer, a little bit deeper, a little bit more, waking when they need to feed or two or three, whatever is needed, waking to connect with you, not waking, I guess, unnecessarily. If that, And then as a result of that, the overtired tank is staying low and you're starting to build your child's sleep profile as a result. I love the, the analogy of the tank that kind of keeps coming up from yourself yeah. in relation to the sleep. I think that's hugely important and the individuality of your of the child as well. I think everyone is individual and that needs to be definitely embraced and set from that early in age. Where can people find out about the books and where can people buy the books, Lucy? Thank you. Um, and just before, just because I did talk about that tank a bit and I, I'm conscious that what I don't either want, though, is parents being so obsessed with overtiredness yeah. that they become hyper act, you know, hyper vigilant on it. Your child is going to become overtired at different points in time. Of course, they are. But what you're trying to do is avoid it unnecessarily happening. And so, and that that comes from being informed. Does that make sense to you? So I just would want to say that because I am totally aware of all the emotions that are highly charged for everybody um, when they are trying to work through a challenge. So in terms of where can people find me, well, my um, website address is sleepmatters.ie and both of my books are available there, but they're both available in all bookshops and bookstores and um, and online. And of course, the most visible place that I am is probably Instagram, which is Lucy Wolf Sleep, and then also on Facebook as Sleep Matters with Lucy Wolf. Um, and I guess I probably should mention as well, because I keep, I always forget, I do have a product range as well which is for, um, it's, it's a natural product range just to, again, in, introduce as part of a bedtime routine. It's for adults and children. Um, and it's just a natural range of a, a rub and a sleep spray that parents and people, nobody doesn't, don't you need to be a parent, um, can use just as an addition to their sleep routine and to help, again, hopefully encourage more rested and um, 
more consolidated seat. Like there's so much there for I, I would if if you are a parent, I would highly rec- highly recommend listening to that episode again alongside the book and if you have got the book i would highly encourage you to work with lucy alongside it because as as lucy has said on the episode that generally the people who kind of go rogue with themselves may not get the most amazing results so it is important to kind of work with lucy on that as well so lucy i cannot thank you enough for being giving up so much your of your morning to kind of have a chat with me um and for, for everything and for the, the, the books as well. So all the links will be put into the write-up for you for the guys if they want to kind of purchase it. So thank you so much for coming on, Lucy. Oh, thanks so much for having me. It's been so lovely to chat with you. It's lovely to have the opportunity. Um, so I really appreciate it as well, Shane. And thanks so much. I really hope you guys enjoy that episode with Lucy. So guys, if you've enjoyed the episode, please do tag Lucy and I up on your story and do leave a review up on iTunes. The more reviews that are up on iTunes, the more I can continue to do the podcast. The more it goes up in the ratings, the better the guests, the most, the more incredible guests that I can get on. So thank you so much, guys, for listening. Hope you enjoyed the episode.